I wonder if you've ever wondered <laughs> where the phrase, in God we trust, comes from. Right? It's printed on all our money. Uh, what's the history behind that? Well, the model really began around the time of the Civil War. Uh, interestingly, both sides of the conflict claimed God to be on their side. You know, in God we trust. That became a, a rallying cry for both sides of the conflict. Uh, after the Civil War, in 1865, Congress passed uh, a bill uh, allowing for the inclusion of that model on all their coins. Uh, but it was not required. Of course, there was debate about that slogan itself, In God We Trust. Uh, some people wanted something more specific. They wanted the phrase, God our Christ, or In God Alone We Trust. Right? There's always people wanting it to be more religious, right? more content in the, in the slogans. But as it, as it turned out, In God We Trust won out. Uh, and, and that phrase really became, became part of the national culture. Uh, in 1904, Theodore Roosevelt minted some new coins, and he left the phrase out. And, and there was a national uproar. Uh, like people were outraged that he had left out the phrase. <clears throat> By the 1950s, uh, in response to the Cold War and sort of the, the state-sponsored atheism of, uh, of the Soviet Union, um, Congress passed the requirement that in God we trust be printed on all of our money, you know, paper and coins. You know, it's fascinating to think about what a different place our society was in in the 1950s as opposed to today, right? Uh, we live in this increasingly postmodern, post-Christian society, and yet we continue to find that phrase, in God we trust, on our money, and even maybe part of our sort of common vocabulary. How can that be? Well, I think today, as even back then, people recognize that that phrase, in God we trust, is pretty vague. Uh, who is God, after all? You know, it turns out that our culture has not so much rejected the idea of a God, though many have, uh, but I think a lot of people have simply rejected the idea of anyone else being able to tell them who God is. Um, we are happy to say, in God we trust, so long as we all have the authority to define God for ourselves. So all of us here have the slogan, in God we trust, written on our hearts, just as much as it's written in our wallets. But who is God, truly? What is he like? And what if he is nothing like we expected? Well, we are continuing through our very intermittent series through 1 Samuel. Uh, and this morning, we come to a new section of the book. Uh, Samuel has been established as a prophet among the people of Israel. But Israel is in a poor religious state. And, and nowhere is this more evident than in the fact that just like the surrounding nations, they have no idea who God is. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Um, we are going to be covering four chapters of Scripture this morning. So you're going to be helped if you have your Bibles open in front of you. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bibles, it's on page 228. Uh, so, so have it open in front of you so you can follow along. Uh, I think that will help you. Uh, I'm going to start reading here in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. If you're taking notes, point number one, uh, God is not your lucky charm. God is not your lucky charm. Kids, if you're taking notes on your pieces of paper for your piece of candy after the service, point number one, God is not your lucky charm. All right? Look at 1 Samuel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Israel went to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And so the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, 
who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, died. Well, the following verses tell of a messenger running to Eli with the news of the defeat and the death of his sons, and even more, that the ark was captured. Look at verse 18. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel Forty years. Well, the story begins with this conflict between Israel and the Philistines. Well, who are the Philistines? I've heard one person call them coastal rednecks. Uh, I don't know how helpful that is. Uh, But it appears that they were a seafaring people uh, that settled along the coast west of the heartland of Israel. From the time of the judges, they began to conquer more and more of that Canaanite territory, even driving out the tribe of Dan from their allotted land. They, they were a vicious and a tough people. And now they're once again going to war against Israel. It's not clear from the text here who the aggressor is. But either way, the battle does not go well for Israel. Israel is soundly defeated. 4,000 killed is a terrible loss. And so in verse 3, the elders of Israel come up with a plan. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant with us into battle. What was the Ark of the Covenant? Well, it was this wooden box overlaid with gold with these two two golden angels kind of over it. Uh, It signified God's presence with his people. Uh, One of the greatest battles in Israel's history was the Battle of Jericho. And there the priests carried the Ark into battle. Except in this day, the people, in that day, the people were being led by Joshua, the faithful successor of Moses. On this day, it's Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, who are carrying the ark, leading the people into battle. You'll remember from previous chapters that Hophni and Phinehas were despicable men. They were abusive priests who, who used their authority to wrong the people. And they are the ones leading the way. Well, when the ark arrives in the camp, all Israel gives a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. I mean, if this was a Hollywood movie, it would have been at this point where like the the orchestral soundtrack is soaring, right? And and you see lots of people shouting. Uh, Your goosebumps are are coming up. Um, Swords are raising the air. I mean, this is like William Wallace, you know, giving his speech in front of the troops. The people here are excited. The ark has come. The God of Israel is going to save his people. And yet, instead of intimidating the Philistines, all this noise has the opposite effect. Notice how the Philistines respond. They, they remember the, the stories about the mighty gods of Israel delivering them from Egypt. Isn't that amazing? That all the nations saw what happened to Egypt, and they trembled. And now the Philistines rally themselves as never before. And the result is a disaster for Israel. 30,000 soldiers fell. 30,000 brothers and husbands and fathers and sons. And even more, the spiritual leaders of Israel, Hophni and Phinehas, are killed. 
And even more unimaginable, the ark is captured. I, I, I don't think it's nearly sort of possible for us to imagine what that would have been like. I mean, if, if you were alive on that morning of September 11th, uh, maybe you have a, an idea, an inkling of what that might have felt like for, for the Israelites. I mean, this would have been utterly unthinkable and disastrous for, for the ark to be captured by the Philistines, by the enemies of God's people. This would have shaken Israel to, the, to its core, to their identity as the people of God. And we see this represented in the reaction of Eli and Phineas' wife. When Eli hears the news, especially that the ark has been captured, he goes limp. He falls backward, breaks his neck, and he dies. Now, up to this point, Shiloh, where Eli was at, uh, was where the tabernacle was. And, that, and it, it was the place, it was the center of Israel's worship. Now, we, we don't hear from Shiloh again. No more tabernacle, no more worship, no more annual sacrifices, no more feasts. All that is gone. When Phineas' pregnant wife hears the news, she goes into labor. I didn't read that section. Uh, and she dies in childbirth. But even as she's dying, they tell her the news, hey, you're having a son. You know, in that culture, this would have been the happiest news a woman could hear. And yet, Phineas' wife is numb. She names the child Ichabod without glory. The, the glory of Israel has departed. The ark was gone. How could God let this happen? You know, in all of this, we see something of Israel's religious condition. Their worship of God had turned into superstition. Uh, it was no longer a matter of the heart. It was no longer a matter of hearing from God and obeying his word. No, it was about rituals, keeping the, the, the external forms of the religion, superstition, uh, religious bargaining and exchange. You know, people usually think that, you know, formalistic, ritualistic religion is boring. Uh, actually, people can get really hyped up about that kind of religion. You know, some of the biggest worship services in the world are in churches that, tell, that teach you that if you just follow the rules and do what you're supposed to, you are going to be healthy and rich. Uh, you know, people can get really excited about that. The, the, the camp shook and, the, uh, and shouted and the ground resounded when the ark arrived, right? The ark is here. We're going to win. Friends, don't, don't be deceived simply because you have strong emotions, you know, at some sort of loud rock concert type experience. You know, strong emotions themselves are no proof that you know God rightly. You know, Israel's problem here was not that they had too high of a view of what God could do for them. No, God can do anything. Yes, God can bring about victory. God can make you rich and healthy if he wanted to. No, their problem was that they had too low of a view of God. A God that we can manipulate, a God that we can treat like a lucky charm, that if we just do the right things, he'll bless us. That is no God at all. Right? No, notice what the narrator calls the ark in verse 4. He calls it the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, the, the angelic armies who is enthroned on the cherubim. Right? That's the true God. Not the lucky charm God. No, the, the, the God is the one who commands millions upon millions of angel armies. God is the one who is enthroned between the cherubim. These blazing, angelic beings, beings whom if we saw right now, we would be tempted to worship. He is the God of incomprehensible power and glory and authority. He is seated on the throne of the universe. This, God, this ark then was a symbol of the covenant that Israel had with this holy God, that this relationship that Israel had with him. 
The ark picturing the golden cherubim was a reminder of God's presence among his people, even as he's the one who is enthroned in heaven. It's almost as if this ark was his footstool, right, where, where God could rest his feet on. And yet it was a part of his throne room in heaven. And yet here it was on earth among his people. Friends, the problem with a, with a formalistic, ritualistic, superstitious religion is that it misses the holiness and the authority of the God with whom we are dealing with. So, so you say to yourself, I, I don't have anything like that in my life. I don't have an ark in my house. I don't have any lucky charms. What does this have to do with me? Well, you know, has Christianity become for you a kind of religion of rituals, right? You, you, as long as you show up at church, you read your Bibles, you do what your pastors tell you, as long as you do those things, you should basically expect that life will go well for you, right? Um, <clears throat> you know, a, a lot of churches, I think, give that idea, that the sort of culture that exists. As long as you keep your nose clean, uh, as long as you, as you are basically a good moral person, you should have a good job. You should expect to have a good family. You should expect to have healthy kids, obedient kids, a nice retirement in the end. And, in the, and as it all turns out, you'll go to heaven after, after you die. Right? Life works out pretty good. Friends, that is superstitious. That is a sort of God as your lucky charm sort of religion. And when things don't go according to plan, under that kind of religion, we begin to doubt. Is there really a God? Does he even love me? Friends, even if we don't adopt a, a health and wealth kind of blatant sort of prosperity gospel, we as comfortable Western Christians still basically believe that our lives should be, should, should be prosperous and fine uh, so long as we work hard and are morally upright. That's not Christianity. God is not a lucky charm that we can manipulate into giving us what we want. We don't come here every morning because by so doing, we somehow can get on God's good side. It's not as if God needed us to do any of these things. God is not just hanging around waiting that we'll, hoping that we'll pray to him and go to church and give him our, our 15 minutes of Bible reading. No. No, he is the God enthroned in heaven. He is the God worshipped by millions upon millions of cherubim. And unless we see God as the holy, sovereign, almighty God, the one who is utterly transcendent, we are not going to relate to him as we ought. Well, this God is not only transcendent, but he is also the God who speaks. The reason why we have our Bibles is because this God has not left us alone, but he speaks to us. And whatever he says, he always fulfills. He promised that he would bring judgment upon the house of Eli, as we saw in previous chapters. And that is exactly what he did. The reason why we don't have to resort to, superstitious, to superstition is because God has not left us to our own devices to figure him out. No, he, he has spoken to us. He has revealed himself to us in his word. Had Israel been meditating on God's word as Moses had given it to them, they would have known that the ark was not some kind of lucky charm they could just trot out to battle. No, they would have known that God was their only hope. And so that's why we read our Bibles. That's why we gather for worship. We're not trying to bargain with God. It's because we want to know him. We don't know him rightly. We want to hear from him. We want to build our lives according to his rule and his reign in this world. Friends, superstition will come crashing down either in this life or in the next. If the ark can be captured, then so can whatever superstition you are building up. No, cultivate a bigger view of God and live that out by listening to his word with awe that he would be a God who would speak to you. Well, the Israelites treated God like a lucky charm and the ark was captured now, how will the Philistines treat God? Point number two, if you're taking notes, God is not just another option. God is not just another option, okay? 
1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. When the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around the ark to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. So they sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, so that the cry of the city went up to heaven. Well, we'll stop there. Well, the Philistines... Take the Ark of the Covenant, <clears throat> place it in the Temple of Dagon. You know, what's, look, notice what's going on here. Yes, they've defeated the God of Israel in their minds. But notice they're not like chopping down the Ark or destroying it. No, they're, they're placing it next to Dagon. You know, what that's communicating is that now the God of Israel works for them. Right? Uh, in, their day, in their day, the worldview was that there were lots of gods in the land. And the more gods you had on your side, the better. Uh, unlike monotheism, the sort of po- Canaanite polytheism was, was much more tolerant. Right? It's much more accepting just to believe that there are lots of different gods of all the different kinds of nations with different powers and different authorities. And so if, if Philistia can be strengthened by both Dagon and Yahweh, you know, then all the better. Well, clearly, the God of Israel will have none of that. The next morning, they wake up to find Dagon fallen on its face before the ark. So the priests quickly have to, like, pick their God back up and and prop him up, maybe bolt him in a little bit better. You know, if, if you have to prop your idols up, that's never a good sign for your religion. Well, once again, they come back the next morning, and the message is even clearer. Dagon's head and his hands have been chopped off. Uh, these would have been signs of conquest that the Philistines would have understood. You know, what, this is what you do to a conquered people. You chop off their heads, you chop off their hands, carry them on bags. You know, it's a gruesome thing. Well, Yahweh here conquers Dagon, and he takes no prisoners. There's no mistake. The God of Israel will not share his throne with another. Of course, it's hard to give up idols, and even though the message is clear, the priests of Dagon turn this event into a new tradition where they hop over the threshold every time they walk into the temple. You know, idolatry is a stubborn thing. Even as Dagon's hands are severed, the hand of the God of Israel is heavy against the Philistines. Wherever the ark goes, tumors are breaking out, people are dying of plagues, and panic is setting in. You know, as terrifying as all this is, I'm amazed that the God of Israel did not just wipe out the Philistines. Uh, if there's anything that the Old Testament teaches us, is that the holy God will not dwell among a sinful people. 
God's hand is heavy upon these Philistines because like all of humanity, they are sinful and they are separated from God by their sin. Well, in chapter 6, we see that after six months, the Philistines have had enough. They need to send the ark back. And if you, if you go ahead and read chapter 6, you'll see that the priests really have no idea what they're doing. They come up with this plan to offer, offer this lavish offering of golden mice and golden tumors. You know, they, it's, it's this sort of test. Uh, and they also sort of de- devise this thing. Let, let's, let's make a test here. Let's figure out if this is really from the God of Israel. Uh, let's separate two milk cows from their calves. And let's hitch these two cows to a wagon carrying the ark. And let's just see what happens, right? Milk cows do not pull wagons very well. They don't know how to do that in a coordinated fashion. And not only that, they are not easily separated from their calves. And so it really would take a miracle for the ark to be brought back to Israel. But look what happens. Chapter 6, verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 10. And the men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box of the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings. And sacrifice, sacrifices on that day to the Lord. Now skip down to verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Well, miraculously, the, the milk cows go straight down that road, lowing all the way, back to the border of town of Beth Shemesh. You know, there is no question for any Philistine watching that this was a miracle, that it was the hand of the Lord that afflicted them, and that brought about his own deliverance. Well, in Beth Shemesh, the people are working in the fields. They look up and see this, this strange sight. These two milk cows pulling a wagon without a problem. And the Ark of the Covenant returning to its own people. You know, this is not a story where Israel is the hero. In fact, there's no story in the Bible where Israel is the hero. Uh, God is the hero. And God offers his own deliverance. He does not need our help. The ark comes back. The people rejoice. They offer sacrifices. They have a big celebration. And yet somehow things get out of hand. The men of Beth Shemesh look upon the ark of the Lord. They sacrilegiously handle the ark themselves. And God strikes 70 of them dead. You know, God struck the Philistines dead in their sin. God strikes the Israelites dead in their sin. God shows no partiality. God is nobody's puppet. Those who overstep God's holiness will be judged. The chapter ends with a mournful note, right? The people of Beth Shemesh, kind of like the Philistines, are desperate to send the ark away. Don't leave it here. We can't stand it. You know, there's so much that we could glean from these two chapters, but really I I want us to focus on this one idea that God is not just another option. The the Philistines in many ways, and in many ways the the Israelites, treated God like he was just another option in, in the pantheon of options of gods. And really that's an attractive idea. 
Um, <clears throat> you know, we ask the question, does, does idolatry exist today? You know, we, we might not bow down to blocks of stone and wood, but we very much still have idols in our lives. You know, maybe when you think of idols, you can sort of spiritualize them into these ideas of uh, modern-day addictions like, like drugs or alcohol, you know, alcoholism. You know, addictions certainly are a kind of idol, promising everything but delivering only destruction in the end. Uh, that, addictions are a serious thing. And if you're somebody who's wrestling with a kind of addiction, boy, talk to someone about that. You know, get the help that you need. But I also think that idols can be more subtle than that. Any of God's good gifts, when worshipped alongside God, can be a kind of idol. You know, Doug Stewart in his commentary on Exodus explains why idolatry was so attractive in the ancient Near East. I wonder if any of this applies to us. He says that idols back then... Uh, they were guaranteed. They, they offered some kind of guaranteed religion. Right? The formula was simple. You, you carve a god out of wood or stone, and God, the god would enter that icon. And now you have a god right in your home. You know, your incantations, your oaths, your offerings will always be noticed. You know, in other words, idolatry puts us in control. Idols like that today exist. Right? It's as easy as opening a bottle of wine. It's as easy as escaping on social media, as buying that expensive toy that you know you shouldn't buy. You know, life is just easier to manage when we're in charge. Right? We can control our idols. Idolatry back then was selfish, Doug Stewart says. You can scratch the gods' backs and they'll scratch yours. They need food and sacrifices, you need blessings. Do your stuff and they'll be obliged to get you stuff. And in our day today, uh, the idols say the same thing. Pour yourself into your work. Invest your money in these financial securities. And I promise you, you'll get a raise. Your life will be so much better. You'll have that security that you've been longing for. Your life will look like it, those, the way it looks on those magazines and on TV. Idolatry back then was easy. Now, idols don't demand a lot. As long as you show up consistently with your sacrifices, you're in good shape. Now, idols don't ask questions about your marriage, about your prayer life, your church attendance. You know, you can fabricate this amazing life on social media, and everybody will praise you and give you lots of likes. And they're not going to really ask you questions about how you're doing in real life. You know, idolatry is easy like that. Idolatry is convenient. Gods in the ancient worlds were not hard to come by. There was access to idols almost everywhere. Statues, statues can be used at home or on the go. Well, in our consumeristic age, in our age of technology, our idols can be carried with us in our pockets. Whatever thing you worship and admire and love, you can find it in an app instantaneously. I like how my friend Nick Roark organizes all of his smartphone apps According to the seven deadly sins, right? A folder for pride, another folder for greed, another folder for gluttony, envy, and so forth. You know, all of those vices accessible with a tap. Uh, idolatry back then was normal. Everybody did it. It's how women got pregnant. It's how crops grew. It's how armies conquered. Nothing ran in the ancient world without idolatry. In our day... The idols of self-expression and consumerism are the air we breathe. Nothing runs without, without it. Uh, it's hard to even notice it anymore. Right? We think like the world. It's just how people talk. It's just how people operate. We all need those idols, don't we? Idolatry back then was logical. Right? Nations are different. People are different. Needs and desires are different. How can one God cover all of life? They can all be right some of the time. And the idols of our day continue to sound so logical, right? Of course you deserve another glass. Of course you've earned this. Oh, don't let anybody tell you what to do. No, be true to yourself. Whatever you're into, whatever you're admiring, no, you do you. You go for that. It's also logical. 
Idolatry back then was pleasing to the senses. If you're going to be religious, it helps to be able to see your God. Uh, It's so much harder to impress people with an invisible deity. And our world today has no shortage of spectacles to draw our attention, to please our senses, to distract us from the invisible God. Hollywood has this amazing ability to tell stories that make idolatry seem beautiful. And finally, idolatry back then was indulgent. You could eat the leftover meat from sacrifices. You could drink the wine. Generosity to the gods led to feasting and sexual pleasure. And today, the idols of this world continue to promise excitement and pleasure. Friends, we live in a world full of idols. And it's really no different from the world of the Bible. Uh, To say it more accurately, our hearts can so easily turn all kinds of things into idols. Uh, So often these these things are not wrong in and of themselves. They are often good gifts of work and relationship and food and pleasure that God gives to his creation. And yet we worship these things and we have forgotten the one who gave them to us. And like the Philistines, the way that we make these idols respectable is not by destroying the ark. No, we set them up right next to our God. You know, we still go to church. We still profess to be Christians. We still read our Bibles. But we keep our options open. In our day-to-day lives, we say we trust God, but then we find our comfort and our security and our fulfillment from all these other things, from our accomplishments, from food, from some secret pleasure, from other people's approval. We look for our, our hope in those things as much as we do from God's promises. Friends, we all do this. And this passage warns us, God is not just another option. God will not share his throne with another. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Now, if this sounds narrow or intolerant of God, know that actually this command comes to us as his love for us. Because idols will always let us down. Idols will always require you to constantly be propping them back up because they're always going to be falling on their faces. It is loving for God to call us to abandon all their hopes and find our only hope in him because he is the only one in whom there is true life. So friends, what are the idols of your life? I'm not here to tell you you can only watch this many hours of TV this week or you can only do this or that. No, that's no good because like I said, we can make idols of anything, even our rules. No, and nor do I want us to become a church where we go around hunting for one another's idols. That is no good either. No, this is about humble self-examination. If you think something is becoming an idol in your heart, talk to a trusted friend about that. Um, Let them ask questions to you about that. Be humble. Receive that. Answer honestly. Be transparent about your struggles. And then turn to God's word and turn to God in prayer together. Well, in our idolatry, we have all failed. What is our only hope? Point number three. God is our salvation. God is our salvation. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. 
Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mitzvah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzvah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Israel and Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzvah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzvah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Well, the chapter begins at a low point in Israel's history. Shiloh and the tabernacle are gone. The priesthood of Eli is gone. The annual sacrifices and the feasts, they're gone. The men of Beth Shemesh have been struck down by God, a reminder of the people's sinfulness. The ark is in some kind of limbo there in Kiriath-Jerim. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. They have been unfaithful. The worship of the God of Israel has been lost. And now comes Samuel. What do you do? What do you do when all is gone? What is the way back to the Lord? Samuel says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, number one, put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. Number two, direct your heart to the Lord. And number three, serve him only. Right? The, the, the way back to God, in other words, is through repentance. The way back to God is through repentance. Notice, there's nothing here about sacrifices. There's nothing here about feasts. There's nothing here about priests or rituals. No, this is a call to to return to God, right? By turning away from all other false gods and turning back to God, both in your hearts, but yes, now in your lives as you serve him only. You know, repentance begins in the heart, but it moves out in our actions and our lives. And all this culminates in verse five, in this gathering. The nation is gathered at Mitzpah. But this is not like that gathering back in chapter 4 when the ark entered into the camp, right? There, there's no shouting here. The earth is not resounding. No, the people are fasting. The people are confessing their sins. We have sinned against the Lord. They're pouring out water as a symbol of their repentance and the washing of their sins. And Samuel is there judging the people, proclaiming God's word to them. Applying God's law to the, people, to the people. Again, friends, unlike what we saw in chapter 4, here is the kind of worship experience that you want. Not a lot of shouting necessarily, not a lot of earth resounding necessarily. No, but what really matters is this, humility, confession, repentance, right? Seeking after the Lord. Well, the Philistines see this happening and they see this as a perfect opportunity, right? Israel is totally unprepared. And so Philistines come against Israel, and the people of Israel know they're in trouble. They plead for Samuel to intercede for them, and Samuel does exactly that. Previously, Hophni and Phinehas led Israel into battle, carrying the ark like a lucky charm, and God rejected them and judged them. But now here, Samuel intercedes for the people by offering a sacrifice and by praying for them. And the Lord answers him. The Lord thunders from heaven with a mighty sound and he routs the Philistines and defeats them. And now from one of the lowest points in their history to this wonderful moment. Verse 12, the people commemorate this occasion by raising up a stone called Ebenezer, 
wiping away the shame of their defeat at Ebenezer back in chapter 4. You know, the, the power of the Philistines was broken, and the cities that they, were, they, they had previously captured were returned to Israel. And finally now there was peace in the land. Oh, friends, it turns out, as we see here, God's favor was never about rituals or lucky charms or the tabernacle. No, the way into relationship with God is through repentance under the leadership of God's chosen servant. And that's what we see in verses 15, 17, as the chapter concludes. Samuel's ministry is established in Israel. Year by year, he makes a circuit throughout Israel preaching and judging, applying God's word to to the people, helping them be faithful, and then going back to his hometown. And then people would come to him there in Ramah, and he would judge the people from there. Rather than year after year going to Eli and feasting with him and getting drunk, now, year after year, the people go travel to see Samuel, where they can hear God's word taught and are called to repentance and devotion to God. Friends, this chapter gives us a hopeful ending to this story, right? Because like Israel, we are those who have turned God into our own personal genie. We are those who have placed him alongside our own idols. And for that, we have trampled on our creator, the God who sits enthroned, and we are all under his wrath. But here, we see that our hope, our salvation does not lie in ourselves, No, it lies in him. He is the only one who can save us. And this holy, all-powerful God calls us to repentance. You know, if you are someone here who has been enslaved to idolatry, to addictions, and to superstition all your life, I'm here to tell you some amazing news. Change is possible. Change is possible. You don't have to continue the way you are to keep believing these lies. This change that I'm talking about is called repentance. You don't have to keep living the lie. You don't have to keep living in fear. There is a God who is greater, who is more fulfilling, who is more joy-giving than anything in this world. And the way to repentance is not only by turning away from your idols. You know you can't do that alone. No, you got to have something better to turn to. No, it's by turning away from your idols and turning to this God, this God who can save, trusting in him, believing what he has to say rather than the lies of your sin. Friends, repentance is not some religious ritual. Repentance is coming to the living God with all of your sin and all of your brokenness and placing your hope in him. But how can this holy God accept sinners like us? Well, this is why we need a Samuel. Israel could not go to God directly. They needed a mediator. Samuel here was a shadow of the kind of mediator that we need. One whom God accepted, one whom God had chosen. And ultimately, Samuel pointed forward to the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Jesus was chosen by his heavenly Father, loved by him. He lived a perfect life of obedience and devotion to God. And then in the end, he took that life and offered himself as a perfect innocent sacrifice, bearing the wrath of God in the place of sinners like you and me and dying in our place. But then having conquered our sin by his sacrifice, Jesus rose from the dead, triumphing over sin and death, routing them and defeating them altogether. And now Jesus calls all people to repent, to turn away from their sin and to trust in his finished work for us. This is how we are made right with God. This is how we can repent. So if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, this is what that story has to do with you. You have spent your whole life wandering from God, turning to vain idols, but God has provided you a Savior in Jesus. Put your hope in him, and you will not be disappointed. And if you would like to talk more about what that means, Please come talk to me. Talk to somebody sitting next to you after the service. We'd love to help you think about this more. But repentance is not only for new Christians. It's for all Christians. It's the way of life for all those who follow Jesus. 
right? Samuel's ministry reminds us that what we need is not dramatic mountaintop experiences. No, what we need is week by week, month by month, year by year, faithfulness. Being reminded of God's word. Allowing God's word to confront our sin and comfort us with God's promises. And then us responding with ongoing repentance. Oh, friends, even this past week, what are ways that idols and superstitions have seeped into your heart? What do you need to repent of, even today? Perhaps God is using his word to remind you of who he is, even this morning. All of his power and all of his grace. Turn back to him and keep turning back to him. Because he is the God who receives all those who come humbly to him through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. And even before I lead us in prayer now, take a moment just to reflect on what you've heard and respond to God quietly in your own words. Our Heavenly Father, we know that our hearts are so deceitful that idolatry is such a stubborn, subtle thing so often. So, Lord, we pray that you would reveal these things to us, Lord. Show us ways in which we view, our view of you is way too low. Show us areas of our lives where we are placing our hope in the stuff of this earth. Uh, where we use these things for our own gratification, rather for our love and adoration of you. Oh God, we know that these things reside in our hearts, but Lord, we want to be done with them. Lord, we want to have our hope set on you to, to know that you are the one true God and to love you with all our hearts, our soul, our strength. God, help us in this. Convict us of this. And Lord, thank you that you offer us a Savior in your Son, even for idolaters like us. Oh God, make these things more and more clear to us this week that we may rejoice in you more fully. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.